Hi, it's Darren, and before we jump into today's podcast, I just wanted to encourage you to join me in my Christmas tradition. Every year at about this time, I ask you, my fellow weirdos, to join me in saving the lives of children in Haiti and Guatemala. You can save a life today. You know, children under five, they are mentally and physically stunted from a lack of nutrients and clear water. But this week, your gift of just $150, that'll provide food for a year and clean water for life for three children. A single gift of just $150. Or just send a single gift of $50 to save the life of one child. You can help right now by calling 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE. Or on your mobile phone, you can dial pound 250 and then say the keyword HOPE and that'll connect you to an operator. That's pound 250 on your mobile phone and then say the word HOPE. If you'd rather give online, you can do so on my website. Just go to MarlarHouse.com and then towards the bottom right-hand side, you can click on the banner that says Give Life. And thank you very much and Merry Christmas. This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. What are you doing here? He snarled. His voice was deep and raspy. His breath smelled like bad fish. I'm I'm just taking a joyride in my canoe. Are you alone? He asked. I paused for a moment, not knowing how I should answer. Maybe if I told him I was with somebody, he'd loosen his grip enough for me to run away. I thought for a moment. I'm alone, but my friends are on their way here. They're just over there, by that big Indian rock. I pointed to the large rock in the river. He gazed over my shoulder and tried to focus through the trees to see if he could spot anyone from where I was pointing. He then turned his glare back at me and gave kind of a grunt pulled me along through the woods to the site where they were digging. You're going to stay with me until I see your friends. He pulled me forcefully by my arm in his powerful grip. I was tripping over fallen branches and almost falling into a couple of shallow holes dug by them earlier that left bones exposed. This was the first time that I ever saw an open grave, whether it be ancient or not. I was shocked to see the skulls and rib cages covered by tattered clothing that seemed to have been ripped off their bodies by the grave robbers for the jewelry. I was thrown down beside a nearby tree. All around us, in almost a perfect circle, were holes dug by the grave robbers, and they were digging more. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you are new here, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Android so you don't miss future episodes. Coming up in this episode… The grandmother a boy has never met visits him in a dream a family's pet visits from the grave. A child genius walks out of her house and is never seen again. 
Plus, author Michael Deeb shares a thrilling original story of fiction called The Petroglyphs. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. My first experience or encounter with the paranormal happened at the age of 12. My dad passed away when I was little, and I grew up idolizing my mother, a tarot card reader. We settled down in Concord, New Hampshire, but went back to India for a couple of weeks as my grandmother was about to breathe her last. My mom was very attached to her and Granny always wanted to meet me before she closed her eyes for one last time. So we took a flight from Boston with a layover at Frankfurt and then to Chennai. We missed our flight in Frankfurt due to a snowstorm and had to wait for a day until we got a rebooked flight. While I was about to board the flight, I heard someone call my name. I turned back and asked Mom if she had called me and she said no and then we took our seats in the flight, and I was listening to a few songs on my Sony Walkman. We didn't have iPods or MP3 players during those days. I was trying to sleep when I heard the same voice again. I woke up, and then the entire flight was empty, and my granny was next to me and looking at me. I was shocked. I was searching for my mom but couldn't see her. My granny came next to me and said, all I wanted was to see your face one last time, but fate never let that happen, so I came looking for you. You look exactly like your dad. I wish he'd lived long enough to see you grow into a man. Do not worry, I will take care of you as long as you live. She kept fading away, and suddenly I woke up and realized it was just a dream. I immediately told Mom that I had a dream like that, and she started sobbing uncontrollably. She said she too had a similar dream, where Granny bid farewell to my mom as well. I brushed aside the fact that it was Granny's spirit and still had the slightest of hope that she would be waiting for me in Chennai. After we reached home, we realized Granny passed away a day ago, around the same time my mom and myself had that dream. They had to cremate her immediately as they couldn't get a freezer box to hold her corpse until we arrived. I felt completely heartbroken. I have never seen my granny in my life, but the amount of love and affection she had on me was huge. She wanted me to come to her at least once before she died. I never had the chance to show her the same kind of affection even once. And my fate I will have to live with that guilt for the rest of my life. Even now, every year on the day she died, I still get the same dream, with Granny at a much happier place and constantly taking care of us. We got our cat when he was three months old. He came from the house of a crazy cat lady. She literally had 20 feral cats living in her basement. He was one of the latest litters to be born. 
The woman who kept the cats didn't try to socialize him, so our cat was pretty near feral. After a few years, he started sleeping on my bed at my feet, which was as close as he voluntarily came to me, unless I was feeding him. After eight years, he became very ill, which devastated my husband as they had grown quite close. My cat lost a lot of weight very quickly and we put him down because he was suffering terribly. That night, our family mourned. The next morning I woke up, looked at the foot of my bed and saw him in his usual spot looking as healthy as can be. Then he just disappeared. I mentioned this to my husband and he said he saw the cat earlier that morning in the same spot. He does not believe in spirits and immediately said it must have been the blanket and the dim light. I know it was my cat. I know he came back to say goodbye and let us know he was at peace. I never saw him again after that. On December 7, 1939, a young woman who was regarded as a child prodigy after publishing her first novel at the age of 12 walked out of her house one evening and was never seen again. Like a character from her best-known book who disappeared into the woods one day, Barbara also vanished. She was never seen again, and to this day, her disappearance remains unsolved. Barbara Newhall Follett was born on March 4, 1914, to writer Wilson Follett and his wife Helen. She was an exceedingly bright toddler who had an obsession with words and letters. When she was just three years old, she discovered her father's typewriter and, to his delight, became fascinated with the machine. By the time she turned five, she was being homeschooled by her mother. This allowed Barbara as much as she wanted to pursue her creative interests. She began her first book, The Life of the Spinning Wheel, The Rocking Horse, and The Rabbit, at the age of eight, brushing aside time with her friends in order to write. During her childhood years, she also created an imaginary world called Barksolia, which she developed a complete language and vocabulary. There was no question, she was not an ordinary child. Finally, in 1926, at the age of 12, she published her first book, The House Without Windows. She had actually completed it when she was nine, but rewrote it from memory after the original manuscript was lost in a fire. The book told the story of, in Barbara's own words, a child who ran away from loneliness to find companions in the woods, animal friends. Wilson Follett had been working for Knopf in New York and passed along his daughter's novel to an editor. It was quickly approved for publication, and in February 1927, the glowing reviews began pouring in. The New York Times praised the book, as did famed English children's author Eleanor Fargion, who said, I don't know what to call this book except a miracle. Fame came suddenly for the young girl. H. L. Mencken even wrote to her parents with his congratulations. Two years later, Barbara wrote her second novel, The Voyage of Norman D. Several other books followed, and Barbara's future looked bright. But such a future 
was not to be. Wilson Follett, going through a midlife crisis, decided to leave his family for a younger woman. Barbara was devastated by her father's betrayal. Helen tried to be optimistic and took her daughter on a sailing trip through the Caribbean. The mother and daughter even co-authored a book about their travels, which was published in 1932 as Magical Portholes. Unfortunately, though, by 1929 there was little money left. After the stock market crash, followed by the onset of the Great Depression, Barbara's plans to write for a living were dashed. At 16, she took a fast course in shorthand and found a secretarial job. Even so, her creative spirit could not be completely stifled. She wrote two more books, Lost Island and Travels Without a Donkey. But that was the end of her literary career. Without her father's backing, Barbara burned out and settled into what seemed an ordinary life. She met a man named Nickerson Rogers, and the two eloped. For a while, things were peaceful for her. The couple settled in Brookline, Massachusetts, and Barbara traveled extensively. But after returning from a solo trip in November 1939, she learned that her husband had been cheating on her. Barbara's life was, once again, in chaos, and the couple began to argue constantly. After one argument on the evening of December 7, 1939, Barbara walked out of the house with $30 in her wallet. She never came back. Nick Rogers waited two weeks before reporting his wife's disappearance to the police and another four weeks before filing a missing persons report. Hospitals and morgues were contacted, hotels were searched, but there was no sign of her. A public plea was sent out because no one recognized the name Barbara Rogers as opposed to her more famous maiden name, the call for information went largely unnoticed. More than 13 years passed, but Helen Follett continued to press the authorities. She knew that her son-in-law had made little effort to find Barbara and suggested that he may have had something to do with her disappearance. But there was no evidence of that. Helen vowed to continue the search. In 1966, 27 years after Barbara vanished, Helen published a story about her daughter. The press finally got wind of the fact that child prodigy Barbara Newhall Follett was the missing Barbara Rogers. There was a renewed interest in the story as well as in Barbara's work, but it quickly faded. There was still no trace of the missing woman. Those who knew her best came to believe that Barbara simply decided to follow the storyline of her books, in which the characters ran off to the woods or left on a voyage across the sea when their troubles became too great. She'd simply had enough of her current reality, they thought, and decided to create a new one from her own imagination. We'll probably never know what happened to the young genius who just wanted to write books we're left with the mystery of whatever happened to her and the mystery of what books she might have someday written if her life had not gone awry. Some may not believe, and I understand, because what happened that summer was beyond belief. And now that I'm much older, I'm going to try and put it down in words. 
When I was younger, around 18 years of age, I lived in a small town by the Susquehanna River. I was always intrigued by my genealogy on my mother's side, linking us to the local Native Americans that lived along this river long ago. I didn't look like an Indian like most people are used to seeing, and the percentage of Native American that flowed through my veins was minimal to say the least. But still, I was proud to say I had some Native American in me. In those days, I used to look up all of the local history. I would learn as much as I could about the people that used to live here. Right here, where this very town was placed. The natives around here back then, or anywhere else for that matter, never got much respect from the white settlers that came here to take over the land that was already spoken for. I guess that's why the Indians used to bury their dead on the islands in the river. It was to keep people away from their dead and let their spirits rest in peace. It was always bad luck for anyone to go on sacred Indian burial grounds. Even the Indians didn't go there unless they were burying another. They would dig holes much like we do, and each family member would put their most valuable possessions in the grave before covering them with dirt. The sad thing is that over the past few years, there have been many grave robbers digging all over the islands, uncovering the graves and collecting the artifacts. After robbing the grave, they would just leave the grave open and uncovered for a local fisherman to find. It was a horribly disrespectful thing to do. They never caught anyone. I guess they usually did it under the cover of darkness, when no one else was liable to stumble across them. I just graduated from high school that year and didn't have much to do that summer but work a part-time job until it was time to go off to college. I remember the year before, while doing some research on the local Indians, that there were supposed to be some petroglyphs on a large rock exposed during the summer months. Petroglyphs are carvings in stone put there by Indians, representing different things. They're usually odd shapes and symbols, usually of animals or people. Actually, no one knows what all the symbols really mean. The rock is located just downstream from the largest island called Herman's Island, named after the man who founded this town. Or should I say, possibly stole this town from the Indians. Because the island was the biggest and usually avoided total flooding during the spring thaw, it was used as the main burial site. Most people think only the higher-ranking elders in the tribes would get a burial spot here. The chiefs, medicine men, and great warriors would get spots here. Everyone thought there was something protecting this island. No one seemed to ever attempt to rob a grave there, even with the possibility of a more valuable booty, if you will. Some islands even caught fire from local fishermen camping out on them and letting their campfires get out of hand. Not this one. I guess that's mainly because all of the locals were afraid of the island. They wouldn't set foot on it beyond the outer edge. They called it Ghost Island or Haunted Island, as it had its share of ghost stories as far back as you can imagine. Everyone in town had one. Everyone but me. I wasn't worried about that sort of thing. I looked at it as a piece of history. So that summer, I had plans on getting in my canoe and visiting the big rock with the petroglyphs 
that was uncovered by the falling water levels that time of year. I woke up much later than I wanted to. I worked the night shift and wasn't used to getting up too early. It was about 5 p.m. by the time I got to the boat launch. I packed a lunch or a dinner, depending on how you look at it, and set off down the river. The island was immediately downriver from me. It was unmistakable. Not only was it the largest of the islands, but it was much more lush and lively. It had big, full trees and thick green grass growing from it. All of the other islands looked gray and dead, with briar bushes and dead trees fallen over. Almost like something had sucked the life right out of them. It always seemed like they would start to die after the graves within the islands were robbed. I remember, when I was much younger, how the islands looked. They were all much like Herman's Island, green and full of life. I got to the southern end of the island and the big rock was sticking out of the water like a gigantic turtle. The current in the river this time of year is light, almost like a lake. I slowly drifted to the rock and pulled up alongside of it and stepped out of the canoe. The rock was flat enough on top to pull the canoe up. I was very excited. As soon as I started to pull the canoe up the north side of the rock, I already started to see a few petroglyphs. I set the canoe down and started to walk slowly across the rock. There were symbols and shapes of animals all over the rock's north side, but nothing on the south or any other side. The symbols seemed to be facing the large island, Herman's Island. It must have something to do with the burial grounds, I thought to myself. I brought some thin, plain white paper and some charcoal pencils. I wanted to get some rubbings of a few of the petroglyphs to take back with me. I thought it might look neat hanging on the wall somewhere. I started rubbing the charcoal on the paper and couldn't quite get it done the way I wanted to. It started to look like something totally different than what was on the rock. After a while of working on the rubbings, I decided to take a break and dig into my lunch bag. I sat on the top of the rock, a perfect place to enjoy a bologna sandwich. I finished off the last bite of food and looked through the rubbings that I'd made. Only a few had turned out good. The rest looked like the ink blot test the shrinks would have you look at. I noticed there was a particular petroglyph that stood out more than the rest, an odd symbol not of an animal or a person, just a symbol of some kind. It reminded me of the crop circles you've always seen in pictures that mysteriously appear in farmers' fields. I picked up my charcoal pencil and started sketching this one on the back of my left hand, thinking if I had a tattoo of this, what would it look like? At this point, I realized that it was starting to get late. The sun was setting, and I didn't want to be out in the river at night, so I grabbed my drawings and started to head down off of the rock when I saw something moving on the island. I thought maybe it was a deer. I heard that sometimes they would wade over to the islands during the summer when the water was down and get stuck over there all winter. There was plenty to eat on the island, for a deer at least. I didn't want to scare it away, so I slowly got into my canoe and started to row towards the island. I could see it more clearly the closer I got, and started to realize that it wasn't a deer I was looking at, but people. One or two, maybe. What were they doing here, I wondered. 
most people were too afraid of the island. How did they get here? They must have a boat on the other side of the island from where I was located. I pulled up to the island and slowly pulled my canoe into the grass. I could see them clearly now, but I could only see one man in the woods only a few yards from me. I hid behind the tall grass and a nearby tree, looking to see what he was doing. He was digging. He had a shovel and some other tools and he was digging in an open area beyond the tree line. This was the grave robber, or at least one of them, and I had him in my sights. He wasn't facing me so I couldn't see his face. I wanted to identify him to tell the local authorities and finally put an end to this. I had to somehow slowly move down the side of the island to get a better look at him. I slowly stood and crept through the woods. I was moving slowly, watching every move of the grave robber. He was digging like he was looking for gold. I should have been watching where I was going because I walked straight into another grave robber. I knew I saw two earlier. I was startled and just stood there looking into his eyes. He was a big man, towering over me. I had never seen him before, not in town. He wasn't a local and later to find out, neither was his friend. He had long, greasy black hair. His face was scarred and he was missing a few front teeth. He grabbed my arm tightly. What are you doing here? He snarled. His voice was deep and raspy. His breath smelled like bad fish. I'm I'm just taking a joyride in my canoe. Are you alone? He asked. I paused for a moment, not knowing how I should answer. Maybe if I told him I was with somebody, he'd loosen his grip enough for me to run away. I thought for a moment. I'm alone, but my friends are on their way here. They're just over there, by that big Indian rock. I pointed to the large rock in the river. He gazed over my shoulder and tried to focus through the trees to see if he could spot anyone from where I was pointing. He then turned his glare back at me and gave kind of a grunt and pulled me along through the woods to the site where they were digging. You're going to stay with me until I see your friends. He pulled me forcefully by my arm in his powerful grip. I was tripping over fallen branches and almost falling into a couple of shallow holes dug by them earlier that left bones exposed. This was the first time I ever saw an open grave, whether it be ancient or not. I was shocked to see the skulls and rib cages covered by tattered clothing that seemed to have been ripped off of their bodies by the grave robbers for the jewelry. I was thrown down beside a nearby tree. All around us, in almost a perfect circle, were holes dug by the grave robbers, and they were digging more. The one digging after seeing me stopped and turned. In a loud voice, what the hell's this? Pointing in my direction. This guy was equally as repulsive, but not as big as the one that dragged me here. I found him snooping around back there when I went to take a piss, the larger one said. What'll we do with him? Asked the man digging. I'll think of something. You just keep digging and hand me a shovel. They kept digging, and the sun kept going down. It was getting so dark that I could barely see my canoe at the end of the island anymore. It was only a few yards away. They must have realized that my friends weren't coming by now. I had to say something. 
My voice still had fear in it, and it was quite broken up. Hey, excuse, excuse me, sir. Uh, excuse me. I really need to get back now. My friends, they're going to wonder where I'm at, I said as I began to stand. Both men turned to me, and the large one yelled out, pointing in my direction with the shovel. Sit your ass down and shut up. There ain't no friends coming for you. You made that up. We're going to need you to dig soon anyway. Just then, his accomplice yelled out, Look! Look! Over here! I think I found me a chief! Yes, sir! He reached down into the grave, this one much deeper than the rest, and pulled out a huge decorative chest plate. I knew they were usually worn by the warriors of the tribe, but the grave robber put the chest plate on and did an Indian dance around their lit lantern. The larger man turned back away from me and yelled out, Put that in a damn bag and quit making so much noise. You trying to get us caught? The two men began to argue. You're the one who brought the damn kid in here, smaller man yelled back. The two men began getting closer to one another, yelling and screaming. I didn't bring him here. He was already here. What's I supposed to do? At that moment, one of the two grave robbers knocked over the lantern and it went out. It was pitch black, and I thought that if I was going to run, now is the time. But I couldn't. It was so dark and my eyes weren't adjusted yet. I couldn't see anything. Then suddenly, I began to see a dim orange glow coming in through the trees. The two men began scrambling for a lighter. They were so busy doing that, they hadn't noticed the orange glow. They were still arguing over who would light the lantern when the glowing began to get brighter. They finally noticed, and they stopped arguing and began to turn towards the glow. For a moment, we were all staring, not sure what the light was. I stood and gazed out through the trees and into the light. The large man turned to me and said in a much softer tone, is this your friends? He turned back into the light. Tell them to come here. I just stared into the light. I began to see what it was. It was the big rock. Not the rock itself, but the petroglyphs on it. They were glowing and getting brighter by the second. Suddenly there was movement in the woods. The larger man gripped his shovel. Who's there? Show yourself. We have your friend in here. You could hear that the large man was starting to get worried in his voice. I was too. I didn't know what was happening. There was more movement in the weeds nearby. It now sounded like it was all around us. Both men were on guard with shovels in hand, standing in the middle of all the open graves, with their backs to each other, trying to keep an eye on every angle. The smaller man reached into a sheath he had tucked under his shirt and pulled out a large bowie knife. Okay, fuckers! You want some of this? Come and get it!" he yelled while grinning his yellow stained teeth. Just then, from where the orange light shined through the trees, stood a figure. It couldn't be what I think it is. It looks like a man, an Indian man with Indian clothes on. As the orange glow increases, it becomes apparent that this man is not normal. His face is not a face but more like a skull with glowing yellow eyes. Its skin was leathery in appearance. His clothes were tattered and torn, hanging loosely from his skeletal frame. In his right hand appeared to be a tomahawk, and his left some sort of knife. He was inching his way closer and closer to the two grave robbers. 
not making a sound other than the dragging of his bony feet through the grass and weeds, and the unforgettable noise of his bones cracking and rubbing together as he moved. The two men were now terrified and began to stand their ground. Both men were focused on this creature heading right for them. The orange glow shinned through the bones of the Indian as he moved toward the two men. Bring it on, asshole! You want some of this? This stuff is mine now and you ain't getting it back!" Larger man yelled, referring to the jewelry and artifacts they'd stolen from the graves. It was now that I realized what the other noises were surrounding us. You could see more figures coming out from the darkness and into the orange glow, all equally as terrifying, some seeming to be in worse shape than others. I pressed myself up against the tree I'd been sitting at and hoped I wouldn't be seen. I could now see that the two grave robbers were surrounded from all sides, and they now realized it too. The first Indian I saw was the first one in close to the men. His eyes were lit with a bright reddish-orange glow. The big man picked up his shovel and slammed it down against the left side of the Indian's body. This blow totally ripped the Indian's left arm off, but didn't phase the creature one bit. Its slow, walking pace was deceiving for the quickness that it had when it struck. Before the man could retract his shovel for another blow, the Indian quickly swung his tomahawk into the grave robber's left side, splitting his ribcage. The man fell to his knees, holding his side, screaming in agony. The Indian then quickly swung his right hand up and over, landing the tomahawk in the big man's forehead. The grave robber's body dropped, and the tomahawk went with him. The smaller man watched in fear and seemed to be paralyzed. The Indian now turned to him, but with no weapon in hand. Those glowing eyes just stared at the man. He screamed in fear and swung his shovel as hard as he could against the Indian's skull and knocked his head completely off. This stopped the Indian in his tracks, but the body just stood there. The man retracted his shovel and slammed it against the side of the Indian's body, and it fell into several pieces onto the ground. The man turned around quickly. He realized he was being encircled by more of these creatures. There were two other Indians that didn't seem to have any weapons. They just reached out at the man and tried to grab at his shirt and body. He was panicking and stumbling backwards. He swung his shovel downwards a few times to break their grip from his clothes. Each swing knocked an arm or a hand off. He then swung once hard, crashing one Indian into the other, seeming to destroy both. From the forest where the first Indian came from came another, this one with a spear of some sort. He flung the spear at the man and it landed into the man's upper thigh and pierced through the other side. The man collapsed. He screamed out loud and sat up, gripping the spear with both hands. He was sitting between two open graves, and as the others moved in on him, I could see skeletal hands and arms coming out from the graves, inches away from him, holding him down their bony fingers digging into his skin. One of the approaching Indians came from behind the man's head and landed a huge battle hammer made of stone into his forehead, crushing his skull. After that blow, there was almost total silence. Then the Indians seemed to stand more upright and they all turned towards me. I was too afraid to move while this was going on, but now I had no choice. I jumped onto my feet and ran towards my canoe. Stay away from me! I yelled as I ran. I didn't do anything! Stay away! 
Just then I tripped over the last dug-up grave before my canoe and landed flat on my back, looking up at the stars above. Before I could move a muscle to get back up, a bony foot landed beside my head. It was one of those creatures standing above me. He looked down at me through those glowing eyes and raised a wooden spear with both arms above my face. I couldn't move. I just covered my face with my hands and arms. A second or two went by, and nothing happened. I peeked through my hands and saw the Indian with the spear above my head still, and then it slowly moved away. I didn't know why, but I didn't care. I just slowly got to my feet again and looked over at my canoe. There were several of these skeletal Indians around my canoe and the banks of the island as well. All of them standing there, staring at me with those glowing eyes. Then, finally, one moved. It picked up the front of my canoe with one hand, gave it a push and slid it into the water. Then they all seemed to back away from it and gave me room to get in, as if they were inviting me to leave the island safely. I went to move towards the canoe when I noticed something on my hand. The petroglyph I had drawn on the back of my hand seemed to be shimmering, almost glowing slightly, the same orange glow coming from the big rock. It must mean something to them. Was this protecting me? Without thinking about it too much, I jumped into my canoe and started rowing. I rowed straight across the river to the nearest side bank. That petroglyph on my hand glowed the whole way across the river until I reached the other side. Then it was just a charcoal smudge left on my hand. I never went back to the island after that for obvious reasons. But the funny thing was, was that no one ever reported anyone missing from any other surrounding towns, and no one ever found the bodies of those two men. I can't help but wonder if the Indians didn't drop the bodies in an open grave on the island before they too crawled back into where they came. No one would ever believe my story if I told them. They would just probably blame me for the deaths of those two men if they were found, and I'd be sent to jail, grave robbers or not. I had no sympathy for them anyway. No, I just sit back and listen to all the ghost stories told by the locals, waiting for someone to tell one just like mine. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron and get exclusive content and updates for as little as $1 per month, including numerous episodes you can't find anywhere else and early episodes. Learn more on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with others and help build the Weird Darkness community by converting your friends and family into weirdos as well. Also, a big thanks to those who have posted reviews about the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. Granny's Last Visit was written by Nulchin, posted at YourGhostStories.com. My Cat Came Back to Say Goodbye was submitted anonymously to WeirdDarkness.com. The Girl Genius Who Vanished was written by Troy Taylor. And the original creepypasta story, The Petroglyphs, 
was submitted to WeirdDarknessBy.com by Michael Deeb. It's a story from his book Four Strokes to Midnight. You can find a link to that book in the show notes. Music in this episode is provided by Midnight Syndicate. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.